You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com, where you'll also find some links to make a donation or send me a message. First up is a piece written by Candice Mallet, published at zcom.org, originally published from Teen Vogue. On the window of a barbecue restaurant in Chattanooga, Tennessee, a taped sign reads, quote, Due to lack of staff, our in-house will be closed until further notice. Another sign on display at the restaurant reads, We are short-staffed. Please be patient with the staff that did show up. No one wants to work anymore. Over the past few weeks, several national and local news outlets have reported stories about businesses unable to reopen their doors due to the lack of job applicants. A Wall Street Journal report found that one of the reasons those surveyed gave for not returning to work was that they were getting more money from unemployment programs. They also mentioned fear of contracting COVID and lack of child care. This is supposed to trigger an alarm, especially in a place like the United States, whose national identity is based upon being the home of hard workers and free enterprise. President Biden has said repeatedly that Americans, quote, aren't looking for a handout, and that we want to work. This is all a part of the American mythology, that we all enjoy the feeling of a good long day's labor, and that America was built on this tenacity and industry. Though this platitude is often repeated, the truth is that America was built on exploitation. The country we know was made possible by the enslavement of African people, seizure of land, and forced displacement of native peoples, and a capitalist system that forces people into working long hours for low pay to provide for basic needs like food and shelter. The problem, if you see it as one, isn't that people are refusing to work because of unemployment benefits and federal assistance, but that wages are so low that people are getting more money from the government dole. If you're expecting people to willingly opt into being exploited for such pathetic wages, then you are clearly mistaken about what people in this country truly want. After receiving several stimulus checks, weekly unemployment payments, and in some cases, rental assistance, perhaps some Americans have decided they don't really hate socialism after all. In a push to get capitalism back to normal, The country's elite are in propaganda war to let us know not to get things twisted. America is very much still about pulling oneself up by their bootstraps. In response to Republican lawmakers' claims that the extra $300 in temporary weekly unemployment aid is making people not want to work, Biden offered a threat. Quote, We're going to make it clear that anyone collecting unemployment who is offered a suitable job must take the job or lose their unemployment, he said at a recent press conference. How the president defines suitable is unclear, but given his decision to back down from aggressively pushing for a federal $15 minimum wage, it's safe to say that we may not have the same definitions of suitable. I find it astounding that politicians whose net worth is in the millions have the nerve to say what's suitable for people to whom an extra $300 a week is literally life-changing. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce also weighed in, saying they wanted an immediate end to the unemployment federal aid. In a statement, Executive Vice President and Chief Police Officer Neil Brady said, quote, The disappointing jobs report makes it clear that paying people not to work is dampening what should be a stronger jobs market. 
This kind of response is interesting because for years we've been told that we need to prepare for our jobs to be taken by robots and artificial intelligence, only to hear now that an extra $1,200 a month in assistance can weaken the job market. Over the course of the pandemic, we've come to understand even more how important individual labor is required to keep life, quote, normal. The year would have looked a lot different without essential workers who were willing to risk their lives to stock grocery stores and deliver packages from Amazon. Despite how much the American self-mythology loves to make it seem like we should be thankful for businesses and the employment they offer, those businesses need our labor to be able to function. For decades, CEO salaries have increased while worker wages have remained stagnant. During the last year, corporate executives' multi-million dollar salaries ballooned while workers' pay decreased, according to a report from the Institute for Policy Studies, a progressive think tank. This is happening in an environment where the average cost of living is rising and the number of people experiencing homelessness and food insecurity is on the rise. It seems clear that we are having the wrong conversation and that instead of trying to coerce people into taking low-paying jobs, we should recognize the harm our current economic system inflicts every single day. If employers want people to work, make it worth it for them to do so. The free market loves competition, right? Then businesses should be able to compete with unemployment benefits from the government. And if they can't, isn't that just the magic hand of the market doing its thing? Let's call it a public option and give people a weekly payment, something equal or greater to what they're receiving from unemployment insurance with the added federal assistance. In a way, unemployment insurance with the extra federal aid has shown us what life could be like if we had a universal basic income. A July 2020 report from the Urban Institute, a think tank focused on economic and social policy, found that the combination of an extra $600 weekly for unemployment benefits in the early months of the pandemic, combined with the expansion of food stamps benefits and stimulus checks, was projected to keep more than 10 million families out of poverty. So why not make this a standing policy and expand it to make sure that undocumented families are not excluded? We shouldn't be required to be workers. Working in the labor market should be an option we can choose to opt into, granted if we determine it's worth our time and added income. Our pre-pandemic lives are not sustainable. They weren't good for our health or this planet. Let's evolve past capitalism, past working our lives away, past destroying the planet for profit's sake. Many of us work only because we're made to, because we need the money to pay for things like housing and medical care. That shouldn't be commodified in the first place. There was a lesson to be learned over the past year. Life is fragile. The future is not predictable. And normal is whatever we make it. We can change, we can adapt, and we must if we're going to survive the devastation that the climate crisis is already delivering. Normal doesn't have to be an eight-hour workday, an eviction notice on your door if you can't pay rent, and an empty fridge because you can't afford groceries. Normal can be weekly government financial aid, universal health care, and choosing to work from home if you want to, or not at all. We are being worked to death by capital, and that is the name of this next piece, written by Alex N. Press, published at jacobinmag.com. Long working hours kill more than 700,000 people per year, even as millions are unable to find enough work to survive. The irrationality of capitalism has a human price. I recently came across a print with an unwieldy name. It's listed on both Amazon and Etsy as, quote, Hustle Weekly Schedule Canvas Print Motivational Wall Office Decor Modern Art Entrepreneur Inspirational Rise Grind Entrepreneurship Success. The SEO-focused name doesn't roll off the tongue, but it does convey the spirit of the object. 
It's a rectangular print, 36 by 24 inch version will cost you $120 on Amazon with black text on a white background. Weekly schedule is written across the top. Rise and Grind 24-7 follows in smaller lettering below. Then, New Week, New Goals. Below that comes the schedule, which reads as follows. Monday, Hustle. Tuesday, Hustle. Wednesday, Hustle. Thursday, Hustle. Friday, Hustle. Saturday, Hustle. Sunday, Hustle. At the bottom is a line of fine print. You can't have a million dollar dream with a minimum wage work ethic. I came across this decor while doing one of my frequent internet dives into hustle culture, a world of people convincing themselves to work harder and longer. The hustle weekly schedule might be comical in its grinning embrace of self-exploitation, and plenty of people would find it ridiculous but it's also a reflection of how the demands of work are experienced by a growing number of people. Constant, with weekends non-existent, and second and third jobs a necessity. Working time is expanding into every nook and cranny of people's lives, and it's killing hundreds of thousands of people each year. That's the finding of a new report by the World Health Organization, WHO, and International Labor Organization, ILO, which analyzes the health outcomes of people who work 55 or more hours per week. The organizations analyze data from around the world and find that in 2016, working 55 or more hours a week resulted in 745,194 deaths, up from roughly 590,000 in 2000. Of these deaths, 398,441 are attributable to stroke and 346,753 to heart disease. This puts those working these hours at an estimated 35% higher risk of stroke and 17% higher risk of heart disease compared to people working 35 to 40 hour weeks. Men and middle-aged adults are particularly exposed and the problem is most prevalent in Southeast Asia. As for how overwork kills us, the report identifies two pathways. For some, the stress of overwork may cause the body to release excessive stress hormones that trigger cardiovascular problems. For others, the stress may lead to unhealthy habits such as smoking, heavy drinking, a poor diet, a lack of exercise, and bad sleep, which in turn contribute to cardiovascular risk. The prevalence of the problem makes overwork more dangerous than other occupational hazards. Exposure to carcinogens kills less people than a long work week. It's certainly not the only way that work kills. Deaths on the job still claim a lot of lives globally. But it's a growing problem. A lot of us are exposed to the grind. In 2016, 8.9% of the global population, around 488 million people, worked at least 55 hours per week. Why are we being worked to death? The expansion of the gig economy and decline of stable work and the reduction in worker power that both results from and gave rise to so-called gig work is largely to blame. In the decades following the Industrial Revolution, there had been a downward trend in the number of hours worked on average. Even if this was unevenly experienced around the globe and across segments of the working class. Much of that is thanks to the efforts of workers themselves to gain control over their lives. Quote, if you love the weekend, thank a union, as they say. The martyring of radicals at Haymarket in 1886 took place at a rally for the eight hour day which itself followed from decades-long efforts to impose the first-ever limits on the workday as well as on child labor. As Samuel Gompers, the first AFL-CIO president, said during the fight for the eight-hour day, quote, However much they may differ upon other matters, all men of labor can unite upon this. 
but in recent years the trend towards shorter working hours has halted and in some cases reversed. A 2018 ILO report found that there has been a bifurcation of working hours, quote, with substantial portions of the global workforce working either excessively long hours, more than 48 hours per week, which particularly affects men, or short hours part-time work less than 35 hours per week, which predominantly impacts women. The link between overwork and underwork, or unemployment, is not new. As Karl Marx describes it in Capital, quote, the overwork of the employed part of the working class swells the ranks of the reserve, while conversely, the greater pressure that the reserve by its competition exerts on the employed workers forces them to submit to overwork and subjects them to the dictates of capital. The reserve here is the reserve army of labor, the people who stand outside the factory gates serving as a useful tool for the employer when a worker complains. Quote, you don't want this job, there are plenty of people who would gladly take it off your hands. Overwork couples with underwork. In retail, for example, the majority of jobs are now part-time, a major shift from a few decades ago when some 70 to 80 percent of such jobs were full-time. These connections make the fight for shorter working hours and greater control over scheduling strategically generative. The demand unites people across positions in the broader society and, much to the boss's chagrin, can meld the interests of the employed, underemployed, and unemployed. John Messenger, the author of the 2018 ILO report, links the rise in working hours to a few developments. There has been, quote, a diversification of working time arrangements, he writes, with a movement away from the standard work week consisting of fixed working hours each day for a fixed number of days, and towards various forms of flexible working time arrangements. For example, new forms of shift work, hours averaging, flexi time arrangements, compressed work weeks, on-call work. With these arrangements comes the expectations that one will always be on call. Rise and grind 24-7. These new standards around availability are entangled with the growing use of new information and communication technologies, the proliferation of smartphones, laptops, and tablets. Now, whether it's a white-collar worker in the United States or a rideshare driver in India, there is no clear boundary between being on the clock and being off of it. Not only one's personal time, but one's personal spaces. Think a Zoom call with your boss, which virtually places him inside your home, are colonized by work. This is an emergency for the working class, one that demands action. There must be a reduction of working hours for those who are worked to death, and guarantees on minimum working hours for those who are struggling to scrape together enough income to stay afloat. We need stronger boundaries between work and the rest of our life, as well as paid leave and sick day laws to ensure that workers aren't forced to shape themselves around the demands of employers. And there must be worker organizations strong enough to enforce these laws and standards. Work, at least as it currently exists, sucks. There's a reason they have to pay you to do it. With overwork killing nearly a million people a year, now is the time to double down on the struggle for less time to the boss, and more time for what we will. Our lives should not be centered around production for profit. Should we relax the grip work discipline has on our use of time, wrote E.P. Thompson, we might, quote, relearn some of the arts of living how to fill the interstices of the day with enriched, more leisurely, personal, and social relations. Or as one writer of a post-work manifesto put it, quote, It's time to get a life. It's either that, or we drop dead. New week, new goals. Next up is a piece published at truthout.org, written by George Igarza. 
just past midnight on December 14, 2020, Osama al-Saidi walked near a police cruiser on a dark city street of Patterson, New Jersey's third largest city just outside New York City. Shortly thereafter, that very same police car cut off al-Saidi's path and outjumped officers Kevin Patino and Kendry Teneo Restituyo. They immediately accosted the 19-year-old, striking him numerous times and dropping him to the ground where they continued their assault. The police report they filed described al-Saidi as, quote, acting belligerent and, quote, screaming profanities, as one might if they're being beaten. That report would remain the only evidence of the incident until surveillance footage surfaced from a store just across from where the beating took place. That footage, vindicating al-Saidi's claims, would ultimately go viral at the beginning of 2021. On April 26, over four months since the incident, the U.S. Department of Justice charged the two officers with assault and filing a false police report. Many wondered if such an outcome would have been possible if it weren't for the surveillance footage and the community response that made the tapes go go viral. Uh, Yeah, many wondered, of course it wouldn't have. Of course those officers would not have had any repercussions whatsoever if not for the surveillance footage and the community response. The federal indictments of the officers would bring the total number of federally charged officers from the Patterson Police Department to 10 in just over a year since federal investigations into the department began. That a police department in a city less than 9 square miles can have no less than 10 officers under federal indictment is a remarkable statistic. Yet, we must resist the temptation to view these 10 officers as simply bad apples. How can we understand the long-standing problems of the Patterson Police Department as not just the consequence of a few individuals, but the result of 21st century carceral logics and racial capitalism? The story of Patterson, New Jersey is a story of many post-industrial cities in the United States. Contemporary modes of policing and broader carceral apparatus present in this city are undergirded by the logics of anti-black racism, dispossession, and underdevelopment that have historically run through the region. After displacing the original Lenny Lenape people in what was known as Lenapahoking land, Alexander Hamilton envisioned the first industrial planned city in the United States in 1789. This new centerpiece for this industry would be the 77-foot-tall waterfall near the middle of the Passaic River that ran from the Hudson River on through Patterson. For nearly 200 years, industry would flourish in this region, drawing Italian, Jewish, and Greek immigrants, as well as internal migrants by way of the Great Migration that saw Southern African Americans move north for better jobs and opportunity in the mid-20th century. With a large textile industry, most notably Silk, Patterson, or Silk City as it would also be known, developed into a hub for social and political organizing, serving as an arena for the contentious labor politics of the early 20th century. One of the first strikes for an eight-hour workday would be organized in Patterson. In 1913, around 100,000 workers took to the streets, clashing with police and union busters for over five months. Ultimately unsuccessful, the legacy of the industrial workers of the world and other prominent figures like radical thinker Hubert Harrison would inspire many to take up the struggle elsewhere. The strike would be a pivotal moment of the era a period which saw anarchists, syndicalists, and other labor activists routinely clash with police, drawing the ire of the United States Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, who would launch his infamous Palmer raids during the first Red Scare, arresting and deporting numerous Patterson radicals by the end of the decade. It became clear early on that the state would mobilize violence as a barrier between capital and the poor and working class. By the 1960s, global divestment had begun to encroach on the industrial cities of the North. 
the factory labor force, which by this point consisted of mostly black and other people of color, was no longer needed, as factory owners could count on moving their factories elsewhere. Global corporations increasingly saw the urban centers of the north as less profitable than the maquiladoras of the southern border or the textile factories of South Asia. By the 1980s, globalization would leave behind shuttered factories and laid-off workers. Many of the white residents would move out to the surrounding suburbs, taking with them the capital that sustained the city's revenue, a phenomenon known as white flight. After decades of pollution along the river, the federal government would designate much of the region along the Passaic River a Superfund site, a territory exhausted and exploited to the point where the subsoil needed to be frequently monitored. This was the new urban reality for black people and people of color in the post-industrial city of the later 20th century. Neoliberal ruins defined by pollution, underfunding, and hypercriminalization. The bargaining power that earlier waves of workers relied on seemingly evaporated with the rise of globalized capital. A new era of Reaganomics would transform the state, unhinging it from its social welfare responsibilities and pushing it towards new mechanisms of social control and criminalization. The poor and people of color that were left behind were now deemed undesirable by the state, labeled super predators, and used as scapegoats in a new era of globalization. In turn, the social and economic disaffection felt by the increasingly outnumbered white populations would shift into racial animosity that would be channeled towards workers of color, including many immigrants, who had to contend with the realities of neoliberalism and racial, racial injustice. By the 1960s, like many other post-industrial cities, Patterson was plagued by deplorable housing conditions, aggressive policing, deregulation, and growing rates of incarceration. After years of harassment and intimidation, the Patterson police were seen as an occupying force in black neighborhoods. Wardens in a city suffering from urban decay, brought about by years of social and economic neglect. The police checked the poor while looking the other way at conditions of overcrowded housing mismanaged by slumlords in one of the most densely populated cities. On the night of August 11, 1964, after the conclusion of a party, around 200 youths spilled into the streets of the city's fourth ward, a predominantly black neighborhood, a constructed ghetto, the result of redlining and de facto segregation. Police quickly moved in to disperse the crowd. Witnessing the manhandling and aggressive tactics, community members began to shout and toss debris at the officers in defense of the youth. An uprising ensued, fueled by years and decades of abuse at the hands of police. Lesser known and preceding the rebellions of Watts in 1965, Detroit and nearby Newark in 1967, the Patterson Uprising was sparked by much of the same violent socioeconomic conditions present in those cities. For three nights, the poor residents of Patterson rose up to express their frustration at the status quo. At least 65 people would be arrested and eight people injured. Not until the comedian and social activist Dick Gregory came into the city to negotiate a truce with civil leaders would the unrest stop. Luckily, no one was killed. But instead of acquiring the promised federal investment for better housing and employment, money would be redirected to an ever-growing police force. Mapping State Violence Quote, I'm trying to go mango hunting. Let's go, read a text sent on November 6, 2017, by Patterson police officer Jonathan Bustios to his partner Frank Toledo. Federal agents believed mangoes was code for money. Over the span of a few years, Toledo, along with at least four other officers, ran an extortion unit on the streets of Patterson around 2016. Toledo and other officers would stop civilians they believed to be holding large amounts of cash and shake them down. Toledo and his gang would force their victims to sign illegal agreements under pressure before searching their property or confiscating their money. 
On several occasions, Toledo would lead a band of officers to beat up petty drug dealers and users on the streets, assuming correctly that the city would never hold up the claims of the destitute in a society that criminalizes and ignores the poor. An open campaign of excoriation began playing out in the streets of Patterson, which Toledo knew quite well was illegal. In pretrial hearings in late 2018, federal prosecutors presented a copy of Toledo's quote, Everything We Do is Illegal text, which he sent to his partner Bustios before they went out to extort residents. Numerous victims have come forward, not only to denounce the actions of Toledo, but to say that many of their complaints to the department's internal affairs office went ignored. Environments such as Patterson's are undergirded by particular logics which shape its specific socioeconomic realities. Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls the interrelationship of landscapes, natural resources, policing, and the controlling of population, carceral geographies. The basis for these punitive geographies lies in the new role of the state under neoliberalism. Under austerity, social welfare shrinks, and thus money is redirected towards institutions of correction and containment. The human excess of neoliberalism is swept up by an ever-growing carceral state that relies on a new labor force contracted to warehouse the newly criminalized population. As Gilmore notes, quote, Agencies start to copy what the police do. The Education Department, for instance, learns that it can receive money for metal detectors much more easily than it can for other kinds of facility upgrades, and prisons can access funds that traditionally went elsewhere. For example, money goes to county jails and state prisons for, quote, mental health services rather than into public health generally. For Patterson, this means nearly half its city budget is earmarked for policing. Although the city has less than half the median income of neighboring Clifton, it counts on nearly three times as many police. A recent study found that based on arrests, black people in Patterson are 459% more likely to have force used on them than a white person. Now nearly two years since the five officers pled guilty, not one has faced any jail time, a symptom of how false systems of justice are slow to impact those with privilege and power. Even in the unlikely scenario these officers do receive the maximum sentence, it does nothing to dismantle the structures enabling these carceral geographies. Sentencing has been delayed as federal prosecutors bring charges against their former sergeant, Michael Cheff. Cheff, although suspended and facing his own slew of charges, is currently earning a yearly taxpayer-funded salary of $134,678. However, amid a massive police apparatus and many decades of abandonment and dispossession, organizers are working towards racial and social justice from the ground up. Since October 2020, Black Lives Matter Patterson, BLM Patterson, has been distributing food, clothes, and hygienic products on Carroll Street, one of the most notorious streets in a city plagued with violence. BLM Patterson deliberately chose this location, a reflection of the ideals of revolutionary solidarity and mutual aid abolitionist practices that are predicated on an embedded presence in the community. Since first coming together in July 2016, BLM Patterson has been cognizant of carceral geographies, their abolitionist projects extending beyond advocacy, proposing community alternatives to address different forms of violence and poverty. Ever since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in March 2020, the collective has mobilized to provide food runs for the elderly, check-ins, and the distribution of other community needs. They have also held various kinds of trainings and workshops, including Know Your Rights, and first aid workshops for the community. And side note, this summer they have a youth camp that is created and developed by the youth in Patterson with activities, field trips, learnings, readings, all pulled together by the youth. 
BLM Patterson's ongoing commitment to the community is an embodied practice of abolition and keeps with what the scholar Cedric Robinson described as a black radical tradition, a revolutionary consciousness that proceeded from the whole historical experience of black people. For Zeli Imani, a Patterson school teacher and organizer with BLM Patterson, quote, Abolition isn't just about dismantling the institutions that are oppressing us, but also creating systems to support, heal, and affirm black lives. As the city scrambles to save face, organizations like BLM Patterson continue to work towards a future beyond carceral logics. Mutual aid isn't charity, says Amani. Mutual aid is community building, and building community, not carceral institutions, is how we create safer and stronger communities. You can find out more about Black Lives Matter Patterson at blmpatterson.org or at patreon.com slash blmpatterson. Next up is a piece published at mismagazine.com written by Carrie N. Baker. For equality, Loretta Ross argues we call in, not call out. Quote, there's too much infighting in the feminist movement, feminist activist Loretta Ross told Ms. We're too vulnerable. Our weaknesses become our opponents' opportunities. Ross is raising an alarm about the corrosive practice of calling out in social justice movements and proposes an alternative, calling in, which she describes as a, quote, feminist practice of intersectionality. Calling in is a strategy for working together across differences. Feminists have negotiated their differences of race, class, sexuality, politics, and more for generations, often using these distinctions to strengthen feminist activism. But sometimes these differences have become destructive. Calling out is publicly criticizing others in a way that humiliates them. Calling out can be a useful tactic for holding human rights violators accountable, Ross says, particularly for less powerful people trying to stop harm by more powerful people or entities. But calling out is often counterproductive when it takes the form of public shaming within social movement spaces, particularly when it results in banishing others because they are not, quote, woke enough. Some people use social activism to boost their ego or standing in a community, or to impose political purity of opinions through ideological bullying. Calling out is about power, Ross says. It's a way of gaining power in social interactions. In a group, if you can call somebody else out, then you all of a sudden control the group, and you can set the agenda. It cuts off conversation. You can no longer have a give and take. You no longer can compromise. You no longer can work together. All of a sudden, somebody's been banished, and they can't talk anymore. And then others are afraid to speak up for fear of being targeted themselves. Ross says that calling out is toxic to the women's movement because it creates a discouraging atmosphere that drives people away from feminist activism. She argues that it re replicates the carceral system of punishment, by isolating people rather than unifying them, increases harm rather than healing, makes accountability difficult and creates a culture of cynicism and hopelessness. First of all, Ross says, we need to stop having this trigger fuse that when somebody says something that you don't perfectly agree with, that you just set a firecracker off in the middle of their lives and blow them up. Stop and say, wait a minute, we're all on the same team. Even if we've got different roles to play and different pathways, we're all on the same team. Being so quick to take offense is not a statement of how woke you are. It's a statement of how much you need to grow. She gives the example of the calling out that happened around the women's marches. Quote, all that calling out around the pink pussy march of 2017 is totally emblematic, she says. Callouts at the time focused on condemning the pink pussy hats as exclusionary of transgender women and women of color. 
Others berated white women who were new to the movement rather than focusing their energy on the real danger of the Trump administration. Ross is also critical of people who insist on safe spaces and use significant time in movement meetings for somatic exercises and processing their feelings. We need to stop seeing feminism as our personal therapy spaces, she says. The purpose of feminism is to end the oppression of women, full stop, not to create safe spaces where your feelings won't get hurt. We've got to stop seeing the world through a victim trauma lens. Because what that does is makes you not only conflict-averse, but presumes that everything that you see is harming you. Calling in is a brave space practice, not a safe space practice. Ross defines calling in as initiating difficult dialogues with those you disagree with, while respecting their human rights and differences. Ross began her work on calling in back in 2015 when she organized a day-long conference at Smith College. The overwhelmingly positive response from students led her to continue holding workshops on the topic. In February 2020, she held a second conference on calling in, again at Smith College, with Mia Mingus, Catherine Cross, and Assam Ahmad, all thought leaders, on the practice. When COVID-19 hit, Ross began teaching an online course, Calling In the Calling Out Culture. The first time she ran the class, 400 people enrolled. The second time, 700 people signed up. In the course, Ross identifies how and why calling out happens and how to develop skills for calling in. Her course has received rave reviews. It was described as, quote, full of life-changing wisdom and strategy by one student. Ross is now speaking out to mainstream media about calling in, including the New York Times, National Public Radio, and MSNBC's Morning Joe, and she has a forthcoming book on the topic. Calling in is a learnable art, Ross says. To walk around life with short fuses is not a way to be a human rights feminist. We need to create a culture of forgiveness. You've got to find out your own tripwires and be in charge of them, so you're not ruled by your emotions. Then you've got to practice self-forgiveness and forgiveness of others. Ross adds that there's also calling on, a middle step between calling in and calling out. Author and activist Sonia Renee Taylor advocates for calling on people to be better human beings by shifting their perspectives, whereas calling in requires the investment of labor in someone else's growth. Calling on places responsibility for the growth on the other person by centering the person's behavior that needs to change. Calling out is an invitation to a fight. Calling in is an investment in another person's growth. I believe in calling on, calling on people to be better, Ross says. Sometimes people will say a microaggression to you and you don't have the time to invest in their growth and you don't want to call in, so you just respond, you know, I'm calling on you to rethink what you just said, and walk away. I'm calling on you to be a better human being. Calling out is not new. In the 1970s, it was called trashing, Ross says. In April 1976, Ms. published Trashing, the Dark Side of Sisterhood, an article by Joe Freeman. Quote, Trashing is a particularly vicious form of character assassination, Freeman wrote. It is not done to expose disagreements or resolve differences. It is done to disparage and destroy. In the 1980s, then-National Organization for Women President Eleanor Smeal, now the publisher of Ms., characterized this destructive behavior as, quote, a circular firing squad, Ross notes. Ellie is the first one who used that phrase in my presence in the 1980s when we were fighting about the ERA. And I think we still do it. I think calling out is a new form of the circular firing squad that we've been doing for a long time. Quote, We all know there are as many ways to do feminism as there are feminists, she notes. We need to give each other space to be feminist in the way we need to be feminist without insisting that everybody's feminism has to be the same. So Beyonce's way of expressing her feminism reaches a totally different audience than the way Bell Hooks expresses her feminism. They're not oppositional. They're along a continuum. 
Feminism, Ross adds, is whether you believe in ending women's oppression, defeating the patriarchy, and making sure that women are empowered to live the best lives they can live. That's what brings us all together, even if we have different pathways to getting there. That's why we need calling in practices. If we don't create a culture of interdependence and caring as a feminist value, she concludes, then we can't create the kind of world that we want. And finally, here is a piece by Chris Hedges, published at Shearpost.com. Israel, the big lie. Nearly all the words and phrases used by the Democrats, Republicans, and the talking heads on the media to describe the unrest inside Israel and the heaviest Israeli assault against the Palestinians since the 2014 attacks on Gaza, which lasted 51 days and killed more than 2,200 Palestinians, including 551 children, are a lie. Israel by employing its military machine against an occupied population that does not have mechanized units and air force, navy, missiles, heavy artillery, and command and control, not to mention a U.S. commitment to provide a $38 billion defense aid package for Israel over the next decade, is not exercising, quote, the right to defend itself. It is carrying out mass murder. It is a war crime. Israel has made it clear it is ready to destroy and kill as wantonly now as it was in 2014. Israel's Defense Minister Benny Gantz, who was the chief of staff during the murderous assault on Gaza in 2014, has vowed that if Hamas, quote, does not stop the violence, the strike of 2021 will be harder and more painful than that of 2014. The current attacks have already targeted several residential high-rises, including buildings that housed over a dozen local and international press agencies, government buildings, roads, public facilities, agricultural lands, two schools, and a mosque. I spent seven years in the Middle East as a correspondent, four of them as the New York Times Middle East Bureau Chief. I am an Arabic speaker. I lived for weeks at a time in Gaza the world's largest open-air prison, where over 2 million Palestinians exist on the edge of starvation, struggle to find clean water, and endure constant Israeli terror. I have been in Gaza when it was pounded with Israeli artillery and airstrikes. I have watched mothers and fathers wailing in grief, cradling the bloodied bodies of their sons and daughters. I know the crimes of the occupation the food shortages caused by the Israeli blockade, the stifling overcrowding, the contaminated water, the lack of health services, the near-constant electrical outages due to the Israeli targeting of power plants, the crippling poverty, the endemic unemployment, the fear and the despair. I have witnessed the carnage. I also have listened from Gaza to the lies emanating from Jerusalem and Washington. Israel's indiscriminate use of modern industrial weapons to kill thousands of innocents, wound thousands more, and make tens of thousands of families homeless is not a war. It is state-sponsored terror. And while I oppose the indiscriminate firing of rockets by Palestinians into Israel, as I oppose suicide bombings, seeing them also as war crimes. I'm acutely aware of a huge disparity between the industrial violence carried out by Israel against innocent Palestinians and the minimal acts of violence capable of being waged by groups such as Hamas. The false equivalency between Israeli and Palestinian violence was echoed during the war I covered in Bosnia. Those of us in the besieged city of Sarajevo, were pounded daily with hundreds of heavy shells and rockets from the surrounding Serbs. We were targeted by sniper fire. The city suffered a few dozen dead and wounded each day. The government forces inside the city fired back with light mortars and small arms fire. Supporters of the Serbs seized on any casualties caused by Bosnian government forces to play the same dirty game. Although well over 90% of the killings in Bosnia were the fault of the Serbs, as is also true 
regarding Israel. The second and perhaps most important parallel is that the Serbs, like the Israelis, were the principal violators of international law. Israel is in breach of more than 30 UN Security Council resolutions. It is in breach of Article 33 of the Fourth Geneva Convention that defines collective punishment of a civilian population as a war crime. It is in violation of Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention for settling over half a million Jewish Israelis on occupied Palestinian land and for the ethnic cleansing of at least 750,000 Palestinians when the Israeli state was founded and another 300,000 after Gaza, East Jerusalem, and the West Bank were occupied following the 1967 war. Its annexation of East Jerusalem and the Syrian Golan Heights violates international law, as does its building of a security barrier in the West Bank that annexes Palestinian land into Israel. It is in violation of UN General Assembly Resolution 194 that states that Palestinian, quote, refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so at the earliest practicable date. This is the truth. Any other starting point for the discussion of what is taking place between Israel and the Palestinians is a lie. Israel's once vibrant peace movement and political left, which condemned and protested against the Israeli occupation when I lived in Jerusalem, is moribund. The right-wing Netanyahu government, despite its rhetoric about fighting terrorism, has built an alliance with a repressive regime in Saudi Arabia, which also views Iran as an enemy. Saudi Arabia, a country that produced 15 of the 19 hijackers in the September 11 attacks, is reputed to be the most prolific sponsor of international Islamist terrorism, allegedly supporting Salafist jihadism, the basis of al-Qaeda, and groups such as the Afghanistan Taliban, Lakshar-e-Taiba, and the Al-Nursa Front. Saudi Arabia and Israel worked closely together to back the 2013 military coup in Egypt, led by General Abdul Fattah al-Sisi. Sisi overthrew a democratically elected government. He has imprisoned tens of thousands of government critics, including journalists and human rights defenders, on politically motivated charges. The Sisi regime collaborates with Israel by keeping its common border with Gaza closed to Palestinians, trapping them in Gaza's Strip, one of the most densely populated places on earth. Israel's cynicism and hypocrisy, especially when it wraps itself in the mantle of protecting democracy and fighting terrorism, is of epic proportions. Those who are not Jewish in Israel are either second-class citizens or live under brutal military occupation. Israel is not and never has been the exclusive homeland of the Jewish people. From the 7th century until 1948, when Jewish colonial settlers used violence and ethnic cleansing to create the State of Israel, Palestine was overwhelmingly Muslim. It was never empty land. The Jews in Palestine were traditionally a tiny minority. The United States is not an honest broker for peace, but has funded, enabled, and defended Israel's crimes against the Palestinian people. Israel is not defending the rule of law. Israel is not a democracy. It is an apartheid state. That the lie of Israel continues to be embraced by the ruling elites, there is no daylight between statements in defense of Israel war, war crimes by Nancy Pelosi and Ted Cruz, and used as a foundation for any discussion of Israel is a testament to the corrupting power of money, in this case that of the Israel lobby, and the bankruptcy of a political system of legalized bribery that has surrendered its autonomy and its principles to its major donors. It is also a stunning example of how colonial settler projects, and this is true in the United States, always carry out cultural genocide so they can exist in a suspended state of myth and historical amnesia to legitimize themselves. The Israel lobby has shamelessly used its immense political clout to demand that Americans take de facto loyalty oaths to Israel. 
the passage by 35 state legislatures of Israel lobby-backed legislation requiring their workers and contractors under threat of dismissal to sign a pro-Israel oath and promise not to support the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement is a mockery of our constitutional right of free speech. Israel has lobbied the United States Department United States State Department to redefine anti-Semitism under a three-point test known as the three D's, the making of statements that demonize Israel, statements that apply double standards for Israel, and statements that delegitimize the state of Israel. This definition of anti-Semitism is being pushed by the Israeli lobby in state legislatures and on college campuses. The Israel lobby spies in the United States, often at the direction of Israel's Ministry of Strategic Affairs, on those who speak up for the rights of Palestinians. It wages public smear campaigns and blacklists defenders of Palestinian rights, including Jewish historian Norman Finkelstein. UN Special Rapporteur for the Occupied Territories, Richard Falk, also Jewish. And university students, many of them Jewish, and organization organizations such as Students for Justice in Palestine. The Israel lobby has spent hundreds of millions of dollars to manipulate U.S. elections, far beyond anything alleged to have been carried out by Russia, China, or any other country. The heavy-handed interference by Israel in the American political system, which includes operatives and donors bundling together hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions in every U.S. congressional district to bankroll compliant candidates, is documented in the Al Jazeera four-part series, The Lobby. Israel managed to block the lobby from being broadcast. In the film, pirated copy that is available on the website Electronic Intifada, the leaders of the Israel lobby are repeatedly captured on a reporter's hidden camera, explaining how they, backed by the intelligence services within Israel, attack and silence American critics and use massive cash donations to buy politicians. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu secured the unconstitutional invitation by then-House Speaker John Boner to address Congress in 2015 to denounce President Barack Obama's Iranian nuclear agreement. Netanyahu's open defiance of Obama and alliance with the Republican Party, however, did not stop Obama in 2014 from authorizing a 10-year, $38 billion military aid package to Israel, a sad commentary on how captive American politics is to Israeli interests. The investment by Israel and its backers is worth it, especially when you consider that the U.S. has also spent over $6 trillion during the last 20 years fighting feudal wars that Israel and its lobby pushed for in the Middle East. These wars are the greatest strategic debacle in American history, accelerating the decline of the American empire, bankrupting the nation at a time of economic stagnation and mounting poverty, and turning huge parts of the globe against us. They serve Israel's interests, not ours. The longer the mendacious Israel Israeli narrative is embraced, the more empowered become the racists, bigots, conspiracy theorists, and far-right hate groups inside and outside Israel. This steady shift to the far-right in Israel has fostered an alliance between Israel and the Christian right, many of whom are anti-Semites. The more Israel and the Israeli lobby level the charge of anti-Semitism against those who speak up for Palestinian rights as they did against British Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, the more they embolden the real anti-Semites. Racism, including anti-Semitism, is dangerous. It is not only bad for the Jews, it is bad for everyone. It empowers the dark forces of ethnic and religious hatred on the extremes. Netanyahu's racist government has built alliances with far-right leaders in Hungary, India, and Brazil, and was closely allied with Donald Trump. Racists and ethnic chauvinists, as I saw in the wars in the former Yugoslavia, feed off each other. They divide societies into polarized, antagonistic camps that only speak in the language of violence. The radical jihadists need Israel to justify their violence, 
just as Israel needs the radical jihadists to justify its violence. These extremists are ideological twins. This polarization fosters a fearful militarized society. It permits the ruling elites in Israel, as in the United States, to dismantle civil liberties in the name of national security. Israel runs training programs for militarized police, including from the United States. It is a global player in the multi-billion dollar drone industry, competing against China and the U.S. It oversees hundreds of cyber surveillance startups whose espionage innovations, according to the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, have been utilized abroad, quote, to locate and detain human rights activists, persecute members of the LGBT community, silence citizens critical of their governments, and even fabricate cases of blasphemy against Islam in Muslim countries that don't maintain formal relations with Israel. Israel, like the United States, has been poisoned by the psychosis of permanent war. One million Israelis, many of them among the most enlightened and educated, have left the country. Its most courageous human rights campaigners, intellectuals and journalists, Israeli and Palestinian, endure constant government surveillance, arbitrary arrests, and vicious government-run smear campaigns. Mobs and vigilantes, including thugs from right-wing youth groups such as Im Tirtzu, physically assault dissidents. Palestinians, Israeli Arabs, and African immigrants in the slums of Tel Aviv. These Jewish extremists have targeted Palestinians in the Shejara neighborhood, demanding their expulsion. They are supported by an array of anti-Arab groups, including the Otsma Yehudit Party the ideological descendant of the outlawed Koch party, the Lahava movement, which calls for all Palestinians in Israel and the occupied territories to be expelled to surrounding Arab states, and La Familia, of far-right soccer hooligans. Lahava in Hebrew means flame and is the acronym for prevention of assimilation in the Holy Land. Mobs of these Jewish fanatics parade through Palestinian neighborhoods, including in occupied East Jerusalem, protected by Israeli police, shouting to the Palestinians who live there, quote, death to the Arabs, which is also a popular chant at Israeli soccer matches. Israel has pushed through a series of discriminatory laws against non-Jews that echo the racist Nuremberg laws that disenfranchised Jews in Nazi Germany. The community's acceptance law, for example, permits, quote, small, exclusively Jewish towns planted across Israel's Galilee region to formally reject applicants for residency on the grounds of, quote, suitability to the community's fundamental outlook. Israel's education system, starting in primary school, uses the Holocaust to portray Jews as eternal victims. This victimhood is an indoctrination machine used to justify racism, Islamophobia, religious chauvinism, and the deification of the Israeli military. There are many parallels between the deformities that grip Israel and the deformities that grip the United States. The two countries are moving at warp speed towards a 21st century fascism, cloaked in religious language which will revoke what remains of our civil liberties and snuff out our anemic democracies. The failure of the United States to stand up for the rule of law, to demand that the Palestinians, powerless and friendless, even in the Arab world, be granted basic human rights, mirrors the abandonment of vulnerable within our own society. We are headed, I fear, down the road Israel is heading, heading down. It will be devastating for the Palestinians. It will be devastating for us. And all resistance, as the Palestinians courageously show us, will only come from the street. And that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, if you want to check out all the back episodes, you can find them at youcantbeneutral.com. 
YCBNeutral.com. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. And you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. Running Orders by Lena Kalaf Tufaha They call us now before they drop the bombs. The phone rings and someone who knows my first name calls and says in perfect Arabic, This is David. And in my stupor of sonic booms and glass-shattering symphonies still smashing around in my head, I think, do I know any Davids in Gaza? They call us now to say, run. You have 58 seconds from the end of this message. Your house is next. They think of it as some kind of wartime courtesy. It doesn't matter that there is nowhere to run to. It means nothing that the borders are closed and your papers are worthless and mark you only for a life sentence in this prison by the sea. And the alleyways are narrow and there are more human lives packed one against the other more than any other place on earth. Just run. We aren't trying to kill you. It doesn't matter that you can't call us back to tell us the people we claim to want aren't in your house, that there is no one here except you and your children who were cheering for Argentina, sharing the last loaf of bread for this week, counting candles left in case the power goes out. It doesn't matter that you have children. You live in the wrong place, and now is your chance to run to nowhere. It doesn't matter that 58 seconds isn't long enough to find your wedding album, or your son's favorite blanket, or your daughter's almost completed college application, or your shoes, or to gather everyone in the house. It doesn't matter what you had planned. It doesn't matter who you are. Prove you're human. Prove you stand on two legs. Run. Run.